In this episode, we cover one of the most powerful gangsters in New York City during the 1950s and 1960s, Michele Big Mike Miranda, one who had direct ties to some of the most infamous events in mob history and who is the right-hand man of one Don Vitoni, a.k.a. Vito Genovese. The legends of the American Mafia are woven into the fabric of American society and pop culture. We've all seen the movies or heard the stories of the men of this secret society. They're stories of family, power, wealth, respect, greed, betrayal, violence, murder, and mayhem. While the golden age of the mob may be over, the stories have become lore and the names remain as infamous as ever. You're listening to the Members Only Podcast, hosted by history buff and mob aficionado, Jacob Stoops. He tells the true crime biographies of real-life mobsters and dives deep into the plots, subplots, and real facts behind Cosa Nostra, as well as popular mob films and television shows. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Members Only Podcast. I am your host, Jacob Stoops, and I'm a longtime history buff and mob aficionado. Before we get into another in-depth mobster biography, I'd like to quickly say thank you so much to everyone that has followed along and watched my videos, left comments, and subscribed for updates. Speaking of comments, your comments, most of which have been incredibly positive, have helped me get the confirmation that I needed in order to continue to produce in-depth episodes. You've proven how astute you are from a knowledge standpoint, and I've been seriously impressed with your depth of understanding thus far. While I may never quite reach the volume or speed in production of other channels, in case you haven't noticed, I'm committed to digging deep on each subject and doing my best to bring you the little tidbits of information that you won't find anywhere else. My focus will be on quality and not necessarily quantity, and my goal is to continue to live up to the standards you expect. Anyway, uh, I just wanted to say thank you again for taking the time to watch or listen. It truly means a lot. As a quick reminder, I'd love it if you'd like and subscribe to my YouTube channel to get the latest updates as new episodes are released. Also, if you're someone that would rather listen to just the audio version, you can find my podcast on most podcasting platforms. If you enjoy the content, I'd ask that you please give me a good rating to help the show grow. All right, now on to the episode. As with previous episodes, I've done a ton of research on our subject today, Michael, Big Mike Miranda, and I think you're going to enjoy this deep dive into one of the most respected leaders in the history of the Genovese family, which some have called the Ivy League of the Mob. Mike Miranda rose to the position of consigliere in the 1960s, and while he isn't often the main focus of most mob-related conversations, he is someone that you'll see mentioned as a prominent secondary figure or sort of the power behind the throne, so to speak. This mob heavyweight may have never reached the heights like his friend and family namesake Vito Genovese, but he had the respect of his men, and his word carried a lot of weight in the underworld and helped steer the family through periods of serious unrest and turmoil. Miranda's lasting legacy is as one of the men who was in the streets during the formation of the American Mafia, and personally as someone who had direct ties to some of the most infamous events in mob history while riding side saddle to his good friend Vito Genovese. 
After Genevieve ultimately goes to prison in the late 1950s, Miranda becomes part of a shrewd three-man ruling panel of the family, and it is this group of individuals that are largely responsible for setting up the front boss structure that lasts for the next 30 to 40 years and truly, truly baffles uh, law enforcement's efforts to ascertain the true boss of the Genovese family until the 1990s, though even then they couldn't quite prove it. This shrewd way of operating is why the Genovese family has been called the Ivy League and why they have been the most powerful family in the American Mafia for quite some time. And Miranda was right in the middle of laying the foundation for their success as a family, despite the fact that the namesake was a fairly poor boss all in all. But before we get to that, there's a lot to cover, so let's get started by first digging into Big Mike's early life. Michele Miranda was born in San Giuseppe Vesuviano, a province of Naples, Italy. Similar to Vincent Mangano, there are some conflicting records about his birth. A New York Times article that came out when Miranda died indicated that his birth date was July 26, 1891. However, federal death records show the birth year as 1892 or 1893, while his actual grave marker says 1892. What makes this even better is that his naturalization records from 1929 and 1932 suggest his birth date is 1896, so someone is not being truthful. Let's just agree to say that he was born in the 1890s and call it quits. Now back to his birthplace, uh, which is fairly interesting as a side note. For those unfamiliar with the Naples region, and to put it into context, San Giuseppe Vesuviano is on the main peninsula of Italy uh, in the southwest region. It sits at the base of the famous Mount Vesuvius, which of course is famous for destroying the city of Pompeii in 79 AD. And of course, tourists to the region often visit the many ruins of Pompeii. Michele's father was Vincenzo Miranda, and there is a New York City marriage record from 1940 that indicates his mother was named Carmela Bifurco. Uh, he is the younger brother of Antonio Miranda, born around 1887, and appears to be around the same age as his brother Donato Miranda, who was born around 1893. There is also another brother, Pasquale Miranda, of Italy, and a sister, Anna. While much of the family emigrated to America, it appears that Pasquale stayed in Italy. It's worth noting that both Antonio and Donato get involved in the life, though neither rose to the level of their brother Michael. During the 1920s, Michael's brother Antonio became very close with Frank Costello and Vito Genovese, who were then a part of the Masseria gang, and through marriage also became associated with a man dubbed King of the Bootleggers of Springfield, Massachusetts, named Carlo Sinascalci. At the time, Antonio began running Carlo's rackets in Springfield, and this is likely how Springfield eventually came under Genovese control in later years. Unfortunately, Antonio Miranda died of blood poisoning from gangrene that was a result of what was supposed to be a minor procedure to remove a callus from his foot. Talk about bad luck. Mike's brother Donato also appears to have become a member of the Mafia, specifically the Boston Mafia family, according to documents presented at the Kefauver hearings. 
According to some sources, Michael appears to have immigrated to New York City around 1905, and while there are a few records suggesting travel around that time frame, there isn't any solid documentation to support that date. However, according to his 1929 United States immigration records, as well as his petition for citizenship uh, to indicate that he officially arrived in the United States around March 29, 1912, on the vessel SS Canada, though there are some passenger manifests that show him in the country as early as 1908. Though given his name, it's a fair assumption that the 1908 record may have actually been uh, a woman of the same name, right? So his name, of course, is Michele, Michelle, Michele. Uh, people call him Mike or Michael, uh, but his official name is Michele, uh, spelled like the American version of Michelle. Around 1915, Mike lived with his brother Antonio at 178 Mulberry Street in Manhattan. As of the late 1920s, his residence had changed to 36 Kenmare Street in Staten Island, New York. In later years, Miranda's official residence was in Forest Hills, Queens, where he owned an elaborate home uh, rumored to have cost $75,000, which would be approximately $1 million to $1.5 million uh, in today's money. So very, very, uh, very expensive home at the time. At the time of his naturalization request in 1929, Mike was listed as being 32 years of age, a height of 5 foot 6 inches, weight of 175 pounds, with brown hair and brown eyes. He listed his occupation as salesman, while in his marriage record, he listed uh, his occupation as importer. Like most mobsters of the time, he was a bootlegger, though he may have been selling something else for public appearances. He would eventually form the Miranda Importing Company. Speaking of marriage, Michael wed Lucia Lucy Di Lorenzio in 1926. The couple went on to have one son, Anthony Michael Miranda, though as of his official petition for citizenship in 1932, the couple had not yet become parents. Anna Genovese, who was Vito's second wife, furnished significant information to the government about Vito's activities after their divorce later on in life. She also provided the following tidbit to the FBI about Miranda as well. Mrs. Genovese said that she first became acquainted with him, uh, that being Miranda, in the Greenwich Village area when they were both children. She said that shortly before she married Vito Genovese, she double-dated occasionally with him and his wife Edna. What's great about this is that the FBI report uh, has Miranda's wife under the incorrect name. After doing some investigation, I was able to confirm that Edna was the first name of the wife of another Genovese associate, Anthony Tony Bender Strollo. So perhaps Mrs. Genovese simply was mistaken in her recollection of the name or the FBI reported the wrong name uh, in their file. Either way, Mrs. Genovese would go on to say that she married Vito on March 30th, 1932, at which time Mike and Lucia acted as witnesses. After the wedding ceremony, she and Vito returned the favor and acted as witnesses for the Mirandas, who were supposedly married on the same day. Isn't that cute? Uh, <laughs> she claimed that after their marriage, they visited each other socially on a few occasions. However, she claimed she had not seen the Mirandas for the past 15 years. This information uh, at the time was furnished in the 1950s, uh, so that would be, you know, roughly 1935. Uh, Mrs. Genovese claimed that she never knew what business Miranda was allegedly in, and as far as she knew, he never associated with Genovese in a business or social way for the previous 15 years before her testimony. 
And if the FBI believe that, I have a bridge in Brooklyn that I'd like to sell them. That's a lot of bullshit. After officially becoming a U.S. citizen in 1932, both Michael and Lucia's names appear on a return passenger list from Italy, a trip they had taken with none other than Davy, little Davy Patillo, who would later work for and be convicted with Charles Lucky Luciano, who was also a close uh, friend of Miranda. So if you're following along, what's clear is that Miranda's family ties were deep into the criminal underworld. Miranda himself had made some high-level friends in mob circles and especially within what was then known as the Luciano crime family. As the old saying goes, if you want to learn something about someone, look at the friends that they keep. Well, Miranda was keeping some big-time friends that were among the most feared and respected in the New York underworld and the entire nation. Those criminal connections would set the stage for Big Mike's criminal rise, would serve to shape his world in the years to come, and would lead him to be present on the forefront of many critical mob events throughout the 1930s all the way through the 1960s. So let's dig in a little more on just how Mike becomes involved in the streets and how this leads him to a prominent position within the mob later in his career. So as with many other Italian-Americans around the turn of the century, the Mirandas immigrated to New York as the open-door immigration policies of the United States were particularly attractive for Italians, especially peasants who were looking to escape the economic and social hardships of the time. Unfortunately, a lot of immigrants would experience that what they found in America was only marginally better than what they were leaving in Italy or Sicily. While most Italians simply went into the low-wage labor force, many of the experienced criminals picked up where they left off in Italy or Sicily. For many of the youths at the time, they saw the poverty of their family on one hand and the men of respect in the neighborhood making big money, wearing fancy clothing, and who did not seem to have a job, and they decided to forego poverty, run the streets, and live the high life that had been systematically forbidden to them, even if it meant becoming a criminal. So as a start, many of them joined street gangs or began getting into petty crime. Miranda was no different. It has been rumored that he may have been a member of the Camorra in his earlier years, but it is certain that he became involved uh, in crime as a teenager. Miranda's first arrest was in 1915 for petty theft and assault. Also in 1915, he served 30 days in jail for picking pockets of unsuspecting people at Coney Island, he would soon progress to more serious crimes and was arrested in Boston, Buffalo, Pittsburgh, and Springfield over the next decade. At some point in the 1920s or earlier, Miranda hooks up with future mob legend Vito Genovese, a relationship that would last over 40 years and carry Big Mike far in the underworld. Aside from their underworld involvement together, they shared a common ancestry in that they both hailed from small villages in the region of Italy that sits at the base of the famous Mount Vesuvius. In 1925, both Miranda, Genovese, and another man were arraigned together on charges of burglary. Records indicate that when Genovese was arrested, he had a revolver under his pants at his waist. What's interesting here is that this charge wasn't actually dismissed until July 27, 1957. Uh, that is a 30-year charge following everybody around. As I mentioned previously, Miranda had started his own importing company, uh, which was likely a cover for moving alcohol during prohibition, among other things. 
Also during Prohibition, Miranda became an associate of Tommy Three Finger Brown Lucchese, and as a result, was loosely affiliated with the Reina crime family, the forerunner of the Gagliano and modern-day Lucchese crime family of the Bronx. Of course, uh, as we get into the end of the 1920s and into the 1930s, you have the outbreak of the Castellamorese War, which we've covered in other shows. Miranda's position as an associate of Vito Genovese put him under the command of Charles Lucky Luciano, who was initially on the side of Joe Masseria. However, due to Miranda's close association with Lucchese, who was a Maranzano guy, but who was really playing both sides, uh, it's clear that Miranda, along with his pals Genovese and Luciano, were playing both sides against the middle. And of course, the war ended with both Masseria and Maranzano dead and Luciano sitting on top and creating the modern mafia family structure that we know today. In 1931, following the end of the Castellamorese War, Miranda became even closer to Genovese, who was named the underboss of the Luciano crime family and became a made man or full member of that family. Miranda frequently acted as an enforcer for Charles Lucky Luciano and Genovese and also did the occasional hit for the crime family. What I find interesting is that despite being a Genovese protege, he was able to maintain friendships with both men, even though the two, Luciano and Genovese, eventually grew to hate each other later in life. As the 1930s progressed, Miranda kept rising through the family ranks. However, in 1933, Miranda, along with Genovese, would become embroiled in a situation that would have massive, long-lasting consequences for both of their mob careers. According to FBI reports, in December 1933, a low-level hood named Ferdinand the Shadow Baccia steered a wealthy merchant to Genovese and Miranda as a favor, and the pair relieved the unsuspecting man of roughly $150,000 to $160,000. The two-stage scam involved a crooked card game and a fake machine that supposedly made currency, but instead allowed Genovese and Miranda to pocket the cash. Now, you'd think the issue might have come from the rich man who'd lost the money, but the victim of the ruse already knew one of the two most important lessons in life, wisely choosing to eat his losses and keep his mouth shut. Look at me. Never ran on your friends and always keep your mouth shut. Instead, the trouble for Genovese and Miranda came when Baccia decided to demand his cut, a $35,000 share of the scam's proceeds. Considering who he was dealing with, this was really fucking stupid. Baccia was already in the pair's doghouse and steered the sucker to Genovese and Miranda as atonement for holding up a liquor store that happened to be operated by a dear friend of Genovese, one Tony Bender Strollo. Robbing a guy like Strollo by itself is enough to get a person killed, but for some reason Genovese and Miranda had thus far let Baccia off the hook. So when Baccia became too insistent to the point of annoyance, Genovese and Miranda decided it would be much easier just to murder him and gave the contract to Miranda's crew. The setup of this contract has striking, striking similarities to the murder of the character of Maury in the movie Goodfellas. Hey guys, I've been looking all over for you. Jimmy, Henry, how are you? Merry Christmas. Hey, listen, I need the money. Maury, relax. Relax, okay? Jimmy, I need the money. Relax. I'm relaxing. I need the money. I did what I had to do. I need the money. That's nice, boy.
Miranda then ordered a local knockaround guy named Ernest the Hawk Rapolo to set up both Boccia, uh, as well as Boccia's accomplice in the liquor store heist, William Gallo, to be murdered. Ernie the Hawk Rapolo was originally brought to Miranda's attention by his close associate and fellow Brooklyn gangster Cosmo Gus Frasca. According to Rapolo in later testimony, Miranda said to him, Frasca tells me you're a good boy, that you could do a good job. Shadow and Gallo are no good. I want you to put Gallo and Shadow on the spot so they can be killed. Rapolo, perhaps to show how tough he was, suggested to Miranda that he could do the deed himself, to which Miranda seemed disappointed, but told Rapolo to meet him at a restaurant on Mulberry Street near Kenmare Street. At that meeting, Miranda introduced Rapolo to Genovese as Don Vitone, or the great man. It was at this meeting that Vito demanded that if Rapolo didn't want to put Gallo and Baccia on the spot, that Rapolo would have to do this piece of work in the particular way that Genovese wanted. According to Rapolo, Genovese referred to Baccia as a cokey bastard and Gallo as a pimp bastard, so it was fairly clear that Vito had it in for these two punks. At the meeting's conclusion, Miranda told Rapolo to go back to Brooklyn, lay low, and keep in touch with him, Frasca, and George Smurra. After some time, Miranda took Rapolo to see another of his associates, Peter DeFeo. DeFeo then told Rapolo to kill Gallo and that Smurra, Frasca, and another man would kill Baccia. It was at this time that Rapolo was paid $175. Both Baccia and Gallo were so hated by the mob that Rapolo recalled Miranda telling him that the pair had to be murdered even if it meant the hitman had to cowboy them, meaning shoot them wherever they were found, even in the middle of Broadway. Court records would later suggest that on September 19, 1934, at either 533 or 553 Metropolitan Avenue, Brooklyn, a group of hitmen fulfilled the contract on Baccia by shooting him dead inside a Brooklyn coffee shop known as the Circolo Cristofo Club and Cafe. Rapolo later testified that on September 18, 1934, with the help of an old prison associate, Rosario Sali Palmieri, he took Gallo to Coney Island in order to fulfill the second half of the contract. They proceeded to wine and dine Gallo while they waited for word on whether or not Baccia had been killed. Rapolo was to be paid 5000 for the hit on Gallo in total, uh, with 1000 going to his accomplice, Palmieri. After spending the evening in a hotel getting Gallo drunk, Palmieri excused himself to find out what had happened to Baccia. Once they had received word that the shadow had been executed, they got in their car to continue their evening and even made plans to go see a movie. As the men were driving to the movie somewhere around 14th Avenue in Bensonhurst, Rapolo pulled out his pistol, shoved it to Gallo's head, and pulled the trigger three times. Pretty damn dramatic, if you ask me. The only problem was the gun misfired, which left the trio in what I can only imagine was the most awkward situation imaginable. As Rapolo would later tell investigators, a shocked Gallo turned to Rapolo asked, What the hell are you doing? To which Rapolo replied, nothing, I'm only kidding with you, the gun ain't loaded. Now I don't know about you, but 99.9% .9 of people's first instinct would be to get the hell out of there. And while I don't believe that most anyone deserves to be murdered, this story had me personally muttering, what on earth were you thinking? In the end, it's highly likely that William Gallo may have simply been too drunk to fully comprehend all the machinations that were going on around him. So instead of fleeing immediately, Gallo stayed and Rapolo excused himself to go drop off the gun at the home of his girlfriend uh, after the joke had concluded. <laughs> 
what Ernie the Hawk Rapolo actually did when he got to his girlfriend's place was to slather the mechanically defective and most definitely loaded gun as well uh, as its firing mechanism with oil before going back outside again. Once outside, Rapolo, Palmieri, and Gallo continued their drive. Then suddenly, in front of 6603 13th Avenue in Bensonhurst, both Palmieri and Rapolo turned on the unsuspecting Gallo and threw nine shots in his direction, four of which hit the mark. Both the shooters thought Gallo was dead. After the shooting, Rapolo and Palmieri dumped the wounded man on the street and fled. Miraculously, William Gallo had somehow managed to survive, likely because of Rapolo's poor eyesight, to which I wondered, maybe Rapolo should have chosen another profession. Uh, if you've never seen a picture of Rapolo, uh, he's got an eye patch on. Uh, he apparently... Uh, you know, had wounded his eye uh, in some other gunfight uh, earlier on in his life. So he was really dealing with, with one eye. So I think he picked, uh, picked the wrong profession. Now, aside uh, from not killing Gallo, Rapolo screwed up this hit in another way. Out of pure ruthlessness, Mike Miranda had allegedly ordered that Gallo was to be doused in gasoline after he was shot and set on fire, a part of the plan that Rapolo also failed to carry out. The reason for this extra cruel step appears to be that Gallo, along with the previously murdered Baccia, had created such enmity within the underworld that the Mafia wanted to exact this as additional punishment and as a warning for others. The next morning, when Rapolo finally went to see Miranda, who was seething mad in Little Italy, Miranda informed Rapolo that he'd royally fucked this hit up and gave him what was probably an epically severe tongue lashing for good measure. According to The Deadly Don, Vito Genovese, uh, by Anthony Stefano, one of Miranda's lieutenants, George Georgie Blair Smurra, yelled, Why didn't you shoot him in the head like we did that other bastard? At this meeting, the decision was made by Miranda and the others to send Rapolo and Palmieri up to Springfield to lament for the time being until the heat that was sure to come had cooled down. So on September 21st, 1934, the two button men were driven to Springfield, Massachusetts by another future made member, Salvatore Little Sally Celembrino, in order to lay low. They were placed under the protection of Nicholas Camerata, a made soldier in the Springfield faction of the Genovese family. However, as Rapolo later recalled to police, Palmieri became suspicious that they were both being set up to be killed and fled Springfield immediately. Rapolo himself stayed for around two weeks before deciding to come back to New York. Unfortunately for Rapolo and Paul Mary, the case had not yet cooled down and both men would be hauled in for questioning and eventually found guilty of assault in December 1934 after a reluctant gallo fingered them as his shooters. They were each sentenced to terms of 12 to 20 years for first degree assault. Rapolo would end up serving 11 years worth of prison time for the gallo shooting. Apparently, there was some initial suspicion that both Genovese and Miranda were also involved in the Baccia hit, and two months after the killing, Miranda was charged in connection with the murder, and Genovese was hauled in for questioning as well. However, charges against both would eventually be dismissed for the time being, and two uninvolved individuals would wrongly be arrested and sentenced to prison. Seemingly insulated from the Baccia murder, both Genovese and Miranda both returned to their normal lives with Miranda specifically dabbling in car sales in addition to other mob-related activities. However, their comfortability was short-lived as at the time, New York Special Prosecutor Thomas E. Dewey was launching a full-court press against the Mafia. 
with law enforcement scrutiny heating up and the threat of several potential rats to implicate them in the Baccia murder, both Genovese and Miranda decided to flee to Italy, where they would remain for approximately 10 years and until after the conclusion of World War II. At this time, Miranda told close associates that he'd be taking a vacation in, in Italy for a little while, and shortly thereafter, Miranda, now a fugitive, was spotted by FBN agents in Italy. So in essence, both Rapolo and Paul Mary were left holding the bag for Genovese and Miranda. For now. Though he stuck to the code of Omerta and did his time without giving up Genovese or Miranda, Ernie the Hawk Rapolo would eventually have a change of heart after getting jammed up in several other cases that threatened to put him in jail for an even longer stretch than he had already served. In 1944, Rapolo's change of heart led him to become a government informant, at which point he began singing about many crimes, including the Baccia murder, which of course would come back to bite Genovese and Miranda in the ass a decade after the fact. As a result of Rapolo's testimony on August 7, 1944, a grand jury indicted Mike Miranda along with his mentor Vito Genovese as well as Peter DeFeo, George Smurra, Cosmo Gus Frasca, and another man listed as John Doe, but with the alias of Sully, who we know was Paul Mary, for the murder of Ferdinand the Shadow Baccia ten years earlier. Uh, as I just said, the Sully in this case appears to have been a reference to Rapolo's accomplice in the Gallo shooting, Rosario, Sully, Palmieri. The aforementioned indictment charges the five men as follows. Defendants on or about September 13th, 1934 in the county of Kings willfully, feloniously, and of malice aforethought shot and killed Ferdinand Baccia with firearms. Court records indicate that on August 2nd, 1944, Vito Genovese was placed under arrest in Italy. After some time in custody, he was returned to the United States where he was arraigned in Kings County on June 3, 1945, at which time he entered a plea of not guilty. The records indicate that the indictment had been filed on August 7, 1944, and that Genovese was in Italy at the time of the indictment uh, had been filed, and that he had resided continually in Italy since 1937. The court records also contained an affidavit of the detective in the case, Harold E. Fox, dated September 28, 1944. Detective Fox stated that his investigation indicated that on September 19, 1944, at or near 533 Metropolitan Avenue, Brooklyn, one Ferdinand Baccia was shot and killed, and the defendants, after the commission of the crime, met at a house on Mulberry Street and from that point were driven to Springfield, Massachusetts on September 21st, 1934 by Salvatore Little Sally Celembrino. On August 14th, 1944, due to the fact that the NYPD could not locate Miranda or any of the other suspects in the indictment, a bulletin was put out to all commands announcing that warrants had gone out for their immediate arrests. After Genovese was held for several months, the trial finally began on June 6, 1946, with Genovese as the only person present, and of course, uh, the marquee defendant. Mike Miranda and the rest of the co-conspirators were conspicuously absent, but no doubt monitoring the proceedings from afar. Some sources suggest that Miranda had simply stayed in Italy during the trial. Ultimately, the case against Genovese would fall apart completely as Rapolo's testimony, while compelling, failed to directly link the key conspirators to the crime. 
Additionally, the prosecution also ran into a thorny issue relating to a New York State accomplice law that required that a defendant couldn't be convicted solely based on the testimony of an accomplice to the crime. Due to this particular law, the prosecution would have to leverage additional witnesses who could corroborate the testimony. And this is where the far-reaching tentacles of the Mafia left the case against Genovese Miranda and their cohorts in shambles when several material witnesses in the case turned up dead. One government witness, uh, Genovese associate Peter Latempa, had agreed to cooperate with authorities early on after Genovese fled to Italy because he believed that Genovese uh, would never be prosecuted for the crime. However, when it was announced that Genovese was being repatriated home to face charges, Latempa pretty much went, oh shit, and immediately contacted the Brooklyn DA demanding to be put in protective custody. Unfortunately for Latempa, he underestimated the mob's connections as less than a week after Genovese's return, he was famously found dead in his cell after taking medication for gallstones. An autopsy allegedly revealed that he had ingested enough poison to kill eight horses. There is much speculation as to whether or not Genovese had arranged this mysterious death, but the fact remains that Latempa was no longer around to testify. Another man who was reportedly going to appear as a material witness, a man named Jerry Esposito, was shot to death beside a road in Norwood, New Jersey. From a trail of blood that extended 150 feet south of where the body was ultimately found, police deduced that the victim had been shot in an automobile and thrown out while it was moving very fast. So if you're keeping count, that's one ineffective witness and two dead potential witnesses for the score of Mafia 3, Law Enforcement 0. Without anyone to corroborate the testimony, the government's case collapsed. So on June 10, 1946, after a verdict of not guilty was announced, Judge Samuel Leibowitz had no choice but to throw the case out. Before wrapping his gavel and dismissing the case, he delivered the famous rebuke as Genevieve stood in the courtroom with what was described by those in attendance as a disinterested smirk. You are always just one step ahead of Sing Sing and the electric chair. You and your criminal henchmen have thwarted justice time and again by devious means, among which were terrorizing of witnesses, kidnapping them, yes, even murdering those who could give evidence against you. I cannot speak for the jury, but I believe that even if there was a shred of corroborating evidence, you would have been condemned to the chair. Let's bring this all back to our subject, Big Mike Miranda. Still in Italy, Miranda watched events with great interest, and three months after the case fell apart against Genovese, he decided to take his chances by returning to the United States from exile and surrendering himself at the Brooklyn police station. After Miranda turned himself in, prosecutors found that there was no additional corroborating evidence against him, and in January of 1947, the charges against him were dismissed. He walked briskly out of the courtroom after spending just five months in jail. Soon after, the rest of the fugitives, George Smurra, Cosmo Gus Frasca, and Peter DeFeo, turned themselves in and were also able to wiggle their way out of the case as well. So it appears their personal long-standing crisis was averted, which allowed both Genovese and Miranda to get back into the fold within the Luciano crime family. Of course, as time goes on, the freedom attained from beating this case set the stage for Genovese and Miranda to go on to influence events that would have far-reaching uh, impact on the American Cosa Nostra. As for Rapolo, shortly thereafter, he left prison early in what equated to repayment from the mob for his feudal testimony against Genovese and Miranda. 
While the judge who released him expressed significant concerns for his life and even his friends had expected him to die, nothing actually happened to him in the immediate aftermath of the case. Rapolo's brother, Willie, uh, would claim that Mike Miranda personally told Ernie, take care of yourself, kid. Don't worry about nothing. If you need anything, come to me. When a reporter asked Rapolo why he was still alive, he answered, don't you know, I did Vito a big favor. A man can't be tried twice for the same murder. But the Mafia has a long memory, and eventually in 1964, Rapolo would be brutally murdered, with authorities finding his body in Jamaica Bay, Queens. Legend states uh, that Rapolo was personally murdered by John Sonny Francis, legendary underboss of the Colombo family. And so at some point in the late 1940s, uh, after the issue with the Bacha murder had been resolved, Miranda was promoted to capo regime within the Luciano crime family. His crew would go on to become a stalwart within the family who would be leaned upon heavily in the years to come, and many of whom would rise into the leadership ranks on the, in their own right. Some of the members directly in Miranda's regime, or who he had close ties with, were as follows. Alfonso, Don Alphonse Marzano, a member of the Miranda regime who was said to have operated in a soft drink company on the Lower East Side and who also had close association with Joe Perfacci, boss of the Perfacci crime family. Alfonso, Frank, or Funzi Thierry, a soldier who would eventually rise to front boss for the Genovese family who was an incredibly shrewd, calculating, and big earner. Alfred, good-looking out, Chris Giola, a soldier in the family under Miranda who was a key figure in the family's 107th Street group and a large narcotics trafficker. Anthony, Tony Bender Strollo. He was, of course, not in the crew of Miranda, but a strong ally and counterpart who was involved in the planning of the Bacha murder and who later uh, would help run the Neapolitan factions of the family. He eventually became underboss when Vito Genovese took power in 1957, but the relationship soured after Vito went to jail in 1959 and Strollo was eventually murdered. Antonio Apierto, a soldier and partner in the Miranda Importing Company. Antonio Tony the Sheik Carrillo became a soldier and eventually a capo, but came through the ranks as a bodyguard and a driver for Miranda, as well as a partner in a food company with Big Mike. Tony the Sheik Carrillo was said to be Miranda's closest friend within the family. Testimony from congressional hearings stated that Tony the Sheik was a buffer for Miranda and that when you observed the Sheik more often than not, you'd also see Miranda. Barney Miranda, soldier in the family referenced in the 1958 Senate Select Committee hearings on improper activities in the labor or management field. He had a record for carrying a concealed weapon and was said to be involved in labor racketeering, I'm not sure whether or not he was uh, a relative based on, based on the last name. Cosmo Gusser Duke Frasca. He was a trusted member of the Miranda regime who has the distinction of being arrested with Big Mike during the roundups related to the Bacha murder, as well as being listed on the Valachi charts. He eventually rose to capo in the 1960s. David Little Davy Patillo. He wasn't in Miranda's regime, but as mentioned previously, the two were close enough to go on overseas vacations together before Patillo goes away for a long prison stint. Patillo, of course, was a close associate and eventually went away in the same case that scooped up uh, Charlie Lucky Luciano. 
Francesco Frank Solano, a soldier under Miranda's regime who would eventually rise to capo as well as assist Miranda during the Baccia cover-up. His family owned the famous Little Italy restaurant Solano's. George, Georgie Blair Smurra, another member of the Miranda regime who has the distinction of being arrested with Big Mike during the roundups related to the Baccia murder as a co-conspirator. He also ran a popular supper club in Brooklyn until his death in the 1980s. Gerardo Jerry Catina, uh, again, was not in Miranda's crew, but would be a close associate of Miranda and would eventually rise through the ranks to become underboss of the Genovese family and at one time part of the three-man ruling panel. Generoso Dodo Del Del Duca, an early associate of Miranda and Davy Patillo, who started as a soldier and rose to capo in the 1950s. He served as the vice president of the Miranda Importing Company. He was rumored to have been important enough to supposedly have his name in Lucky Luciano's phone book, and also, according to legend Frank Sinatra, happened to be present when he had a heart attack and died in 1960 in Florida. John Buster Ardito, a made man in the crew of Miranda who eventually became a major captain in the family until his death from cancer in 2006. Joseph Sox Lanza, a contemporary of Miranda's within the family who had a stranglehold on the Fulton fish market within Lower Manhattan and who famously made the introduction of the FBI to Luciano and Lansky during World War II when the government seeked mafia assistance to protect the waterfront. Joseph Joe Tobin Scarpanito, a fairly mysterious soldier listed in 1980s government charts who was close with Miranda but eventually in the regime of Generoso del Duca after his promotion to capo. Joe Tobin was an ex-boxer and also had close ties to John Sonny Francesi of the Colombo family. Lorenzo Larry Urchapi Brescia, a soldier who would grow wealthy in the kosher meat industry. Nicholas Camerata. As previously mentioned, Camerata was a soldier who assisted with the Baccia cover-up by hiding the shooters, Ernie the Hawk, Rapolo, and Rosario Palmieri. Uh, he later became a made man uh, with the Springfield faction of the family. Paolo, Charlie the Wop, Fracaretta, reputed to have been a soldier in Vito Genovese's Neapolitan faction of the family and who was close with Miranda as well as Tony Bender Strollo. He has the distinction of being listed in a 1983 government document as a member who was still alive nine years after he had actually died. Peter DeFeo uh, became associated with Genovese and Miranda in the 1920s and rose to prominence for his role in the Baccia murder as the supplier of the murder weapon. He eventually got made and became a capo in the 1950s. He ran his crew well into the 1980s and died in 1993. Salvatore Little Sally Celembrino a soldier within the Neapolitan Genovese faction and under Miranda's regime who would, would eventually rise to capo. He was another who helped Miranda during the Baccia cover-up and also was an influential figure in the International Longshoremen's Association later in his career. Salvatore Salvi Gen Carelli brought into the family uh, as a soldier under Mike Miranda, but spent much of his time working at the Fulton Fish Market with the Lanza brothers. He was still listed on the family's FBI charts as late as the 1980s, though little is known about his later life. So as you can see, uh, most of the people Miranda associated with at a minimum rose to the position of capo, with some even going so far as front boss. If you subscribe to the theory that you're only as good as those you surround yourself with, then it's fair to say his respect was warranted and the crew he ran for several decades was consistently one of the most powerful in the Luciano family. 
Miranda was a highly respected and feared gangster who was said to be diplomatic in most cases, but not afraid to be ruthless when he had to be. Big Mike was a man of respect, one who sought peace among warring factions who often settled disputes that might have led to bloodletting. As a result, top leaders, more often than not, accepted his advice. When comparing Miranda to some of his family's contemporaries, it's fair to say that he was somewhat a cross between Costello and his mentor Genovese. While he didn't have the political connections of Costello, he more often than not tried to settle disputes by reasoning with people rather than murdering them. Of course, on the other end of the spectrum was Genovese, and it's pretty safe to say that you couldn't have been a right-hand man to Genovese without being someone who could handle yourself and do the dirty work for the family. Perhaps Miranda wasn't a complete psychopath or egomaniac like his mentor, but you don't get the respect he had uh, been getting without being a man's man, as they say in the life. Even still, I'd say Miranda was probably more Costello than Genovese, which would ultimately serve him well later on in life when it came to avoiding major legal issues. In addition to his rackets in the garment district, Miranda had criminal interests in illegal gambling, loan sharking, extortion, labor racketeering, narcotic smuggling, and of course, violence of many types. Additionally, there is some commentary in FBI reports that points to Miranda's alleged involvement in an insurance business which specialized in union pension plans and trusts, as well as some reports that indicate that he was involved in auto dealerships, though nothing that I could find to tie him to illegal activities with that specifically. Throughout this period, Miranda maintained very close ties to his mentor, Genovese. In fact, Big Mike Miranda had become important enough that he was part of the New York contingent uh, of mafiosi to attend the famous Havana Conference in 1946. Uh, and it's interesting, uh, if you consider the timeline, uh, this conference takes place in 1946, uh, while he is still in exile, uh, in, in his case with the Bacha murder, doesn't actually get resolved until 1947. So he somehow uh, was able to get to Cuba uh, unscathed uh, at the time. This particular mafia summit, though Mike would be involved in another more infamous one later in his career, was a historic meeting of Cosa Nostra leaders from across the United States arranged by Charles Lucky Luciano at the Hotel Nacional in Havana, Cuba. The conference was to discuss uh, a number of important mob issues to plan new rackets, set future Cosa Nostra policies, as well as review business interests. Some of the specific topics included setting up the global narcotics trade, routes that are really still active today, the reinstitution of the boss of bosses title as a way for Luciano to fend off Genovese's ambition and advances, as well as what to do about Benjamin Bugsy Siegel in Las Vegas, who was believed to be stealing money from the mob. The attendee roster for the Havana conference was a who's who of the early mob and Miranda's presence signaled the growing respect that he had within Cosa Nostra at the time. One of the big things I wonder about this conference is where Miranda was uh, during the alleged situation that occurred between Vito Genovese, Lucky Luciano, and Frank Costello. At the time, Costello was leading the family as acting boss, which had been Vito's role after Luciano went to prison and before he himself had to flee to Italy to avoid prosecution in the Baccia murder. But Luciano was still influencing events uh, as the official boss from afar. When Vito uh, came back into the fold, he did so with a whole lot of resentment towards Luciano and Costello especially. Tension between Luciano and Genovese specifically had been brewing for some time. At the end of the conference, the strain between Luciano and Genovese allegedly reached a boiling point. 
according to the book, The Last Testament of Lucky Luciano. In a meeting with Luciano in his room at the Hotel Nacional, Genovese informed him that the U.S. government knew that Charlie was in Cuba and was pressuring the Cuban government to expel him. To take it a step further, Genovese explained that since Luciano was going to have to return to Italy, he should just go ahead and turn over the, the leadership reins of the family uh, to Genovese and retire. As you can imagine, this was the wrong thing to say, and it royally pissed off Luciano. Uh, positive that Genovese had tipped off the U.S. government to his presence in Cuba, Luciano finally snapped and proceeded to beat the living shit out of Genovese. The beating broke three of Vito's ribs, and it was three days before Vito could travel again. It was said that when Genovese felt better, Luciano and Albert Anastasia put him on a plane to the United States with a threat to kill Vito if he ever mentioned the incident to anybody. Now, in terms of mafia rules, Lucky had broken a big one by violating the rule not to raise hands to another member. Then again, sometimes the mob's rules are more like guidelines to be used when it suits certain ends. Either way, I don't think Genovese uh, would have wanted this to get out either, as it may have hurt his reputation. Unfortunately for Luciano, the New York City papers eventually got wind of the fact that he was in Cuba and the news led the United States government to essentially force Cuba into deporting Luciano uh, to Italy by threatening to withhold important medical supplies as well as humanitarian aid. In the midst of all this tension is Miranda. He's highly respected, but definitely in Vito's camp as his right-hand man. It's likely that he was aware of the tension between Genovese, Luciano, and Costello, and maybe even felt some ill will himself. More than that, it's also likely that he knew either right away or not long after Vito got his beat down. So how he managed to stay neutral and all of that without getting clipped uh, as a Genovese supporter is beyond me. In fact, though I have no proof, it's likely that Miranda was heavily involved in some of the backroom dealing and treachery later on when Vito ultimately makes his play for power. In reality, the focus of most historians looking back tends to be on Genovese and the moves uh, that he was making at the time. And it's actually pretty rare to consider what the men who were with Vito were also going through and how they played a role behind the scenes in the mafia politics of the 1940s and the 1950s. Anyhow, it's just some good food for thought, which leads us into the larger situation going on in New York in the late 1940s and 1950s. So as the 1940s wore on, the New York underworld again became a tangled mess of shifting alliances, plots, and subplots, all of which eventually would cause the simmer to become a boil. One of the best descriptions of the political conditions in the underworld at the time comes from Joe Bonanno's book, Man of Honor. Say what you will about Bonanno, but I think it's fair to say that he really does a great job of illustrating the complexity of the situation in New York and the declining climate and rising tensions at the time. I never saw Luciano after he was convicted and sent to prison. His position as father of one of the New York families was taken over by Frank Costello. Vito Genovese, a member of the same family and the only other man who could have challenged Costello for the top spot, was not around to complicate Costello's life. Vito had fled to Italy after being charged with murder in the U.S. Costello was a suave and diplomatic man. His skill at cultivating friendships among politicians and public officials was such that it earned him the nickname the Prime Minister. He preferred to settle arguments at the conference table rather than in the streets. Despite his moderate ways, Costello knew that to survive in our world, a man has to be versatile, and thus Costello was not without his muscle. In the 1940s, 
Costello's strong arm was Willie Moretti, the man who had bailed me out of a detention center when I came to this country in 1924. In the 1920s, Willie was under the influence of my cousin, Stefano Magadino. Later, he moved to New Jersey and joined Luciano's family. Willie was an exuberant man, colorful, quick to act, and not afraid to speak his mind. One of the reasons Costello relied on Moretti was to foil any lingering ambition Vito Genovese might have to become father. Vito resurfaced in the mid-1940s when murder charges against him were dropped, clearing the way for him to leave Italy and return to the volcano. Uh, again, uh, in his book, you'll see it. Uh, the volcano is what uh, Giovanano calls New York City. For a while, Genovese acted dutifully toward Costello, but trouble was brewing. If Costello was often seen in the company of Moretti, Genovese was now seen in the company of Tommy Lucchese, who belonged to a different family. Meanwhile, Albert Anastasia, from yet a different family, was known to like Costello, but Carlo Gambino, in the same family as, as Anastasia, was very close to Lucchese. Uh, these inter-family alliances were common in New York as no place else and complicated all of our lives. By the late 1940s, New York City was like a firecracker that could go off any time. And the fire would be lit on October 4th, 1951, when Genovese first engineered the assassination of Costello's underboss, Willie Moretti, who'd been suffering from advanced syphilis. Supposedly, Genovese uh, con convinced the commission to authorize the hit on the basis that it was a mercy killing due to the effects of the disease and the fact that Moretti had been on record with the Cavalver Commission as being somewhat open and even playful in his testimony. The fear was that he'd continue to spill the beans, or so they say. In reality, this was a well-timed, politically deft maneuver by Genovese to slowly erode Costello's power. And so, one by one, Costello's key allies would be removed, either by death, jail, or deportation, until he was the only thing standing in the way of Genovese's ambitions to become boss of the Luciano family. Finally, on May 2, 1957, Genovese ordered the assassination of Luciano family boss Costello, and it was undertaken by future boss Vincent the Cingiganti. While the hit attempt ultimately failed, the result was the same. Frank Costello soon retired from the family, leaving Genovese in control. Soon thereafter, Genovese named Gerardo Jerry Catina as underboss and Mike Miranda as consigliere, making him the number three man in the newly renamed Genovese family. Then, in October of 1957, Albert Anastasia was famously murdered in the Park Sheraton Hotel in Midtown Manhattan in a coup by both Genovese and Carlo Gambino, which would serve to eliminate all potential rivals to his power and pave the way for Genovese to become boss of bosses. Unfortunately for Genovese, on November 14, 1957, he made the tremendous mistake of calling for what would become the most infamous meeting in mob history, the Appalachian Meeting. This meeting was a historic summit of the National Syndicate of the American Mafia held at the home of mobster Joseph Joe the Barber Barbera in Appalachian, New York. The Appalachian meeting was called by Vito Genovese primarily to discuss the recent upheaval in New York and to allow both himself and his co-conspirator Carlo Gambino to present a defense for their actions as well as make the case to name Carlo Gambino the new boss of the Anastasia crime family.
The meeting was attended by over 60 other Cosa Nostra bosses from around the country and from the Genovese family, Vito himself, as well as the subject of this episode, Mike Miranda, along with compatriots Jerry Catina and Salvatore Charles Chiri. FBI reports state that Genovese flew to the meeting with fellow mobsters, including Philadelphia boss Joe Ida, Mike Miranda, Gerardo Jerry Catina, and an unnamed associate of Ida's. They departed for the meeting from a Newark airport and arrived in Binghamton, New York, where a car was waiting to drive them to the Barbera residence. To Genovese's great embarrassment, the historic meeting was raided by local law enforcement, resulting in Miranda, Genovese, Katina, and about 60 other mafia bosses being apprehended by federal agents while fleeing the property. Miranda specifically was one of three men found and captured in a cornfield while attempting to flee on foot. As the story goes, police identified the men coming out of a cornfield uh, just down the road from a blockade and had to fire several warning shots, at which point Miranda and his Confederates came out of the cornfield with their hands up. One part of the FBI report that I found hilarious and believed to be mostly untrue was this bit of testimony from Genovese on what transpired after he arrived at the Barbara estate. Genovese said that he went directly to the barbecue pit and had a steak sandwich and a bottle of soda water. Ida and another man left him at the barbecue pit for approximately 20 minutes and then returned, stating that the host, Joseph Barbara, had a heart attack and was seriously ill. Genovese testified that he saw approximately 50 individuals on the Barbara grounds, however, did not know and did not speak with any of them other than those set out above. He said that since the host was ill, Ida and the other man suggested that all return to New York. And again, the other man, uh, the name is redacted. At this point, he was introduced to Russell Buffalino, who offered to drive all of them to the Newark airport. Genevieve said that they left the Barbara residence approximately 1 p.m. and arrived at the Newark airport approximately 6 p.m. or 7 p.m., where Ida picked up his car, which he had previously left, and drove Genovese to his home in Atlantic Highlands, New Jersey. So, <laughs> so I guess that's all just one big coincidence, <laughs> according to Genovese. Uh, I've got another bridge to sell you if you believe that, too. Uh, the names of the individuals who attended the Appalachian meeting were read to Genovese, and he denied knowing any of them in a business or social manner other than those set out above. As a result of the meeting, Big Mike Miranda faced intense questioning, but had an airtight alibi simply saying he was there to visit a sick friend, which was the standard line uh, that most of the attendees fed to the authorities. Not satisfied with the response, the authorities asked him about the murder of Anastasia, as well as the reasoning for the Appalachian Conference, but Miranda refused to speak of any details of the meeting to law enforcement. His relative silence on the matter earned him two years in jail for obstruction of justice. Some additional commentary on the meeting was later provided by an FBI informer classified as T4 in their report. On January 17, 1958, the source advised the FBI that Joseph Perfacci, Vito Genovese, and Mike Miranda were, in his opinion, the three highest-ranking top hoodlums present at the meeting. The informant went on to say that by virtue of their power and position in the underworld, he considers these three to be responsible for making many of the top-level decisions in regard to the criminal operations on the East Coast. 
to go along with these reports, there are additional statements from other informants dating back to as early as 1954 that state Miranda, along with Genovese and Albert Anastasia, were among the three highest rulers of the underworld's affairs. Since Miranda himself was not actually a boss, this just goes to show the level of respect and the perception of those in the life uh, of the power that Miranda held at that time within the underworld. Another report dated around that time, this one out of the Star Journal from November of 1957, targeting readers following the goings-on in gangland, were told that the Queen's District Attorney was looking into the activities of Miranda and another man who had attended the mobsters' convention in Appalachian, Joseph Rosado of Jackson Heights. We have evidence, the District Attorney said, that the mobs are trying to move in and we intend to stop them quick. McKellie, Mike Miranda of Forest Hills, who was a delegate to the recent Hoods Convention in Appalachian, New York, was summoned to O'Connor's office yesterday. Miranda took the fifth when O'Connor's questions probed sensitive spots and the district attorney finally gave up for the time being. O'Connor did not go into details, saying that he did not want to tip his hand. He indicated that Miranda is a likely subject for the Special Rackets Grand Jury and said that he will be called back for more questioning. Miranda was picked up at 1.30 p.m. at an automobile agency in Manhattan where he works, a veteran of numerous police quiz sessions, including the Frank Costello shooting and the Albert Anastasia killing. Miranda took this one in stride. He expressed a little annoyance at the number of press photographers present. What is this, a big show? He snapped. Assistant DAs Francis X. Smith of Sunnyside and Howard Steve of Kew Gardens Hills did the questioning. After he left, Smith reported that Miranda answered questions about his name, address, and occupation. However, a question about other sources of income caused Miranda to invoke the Fifth Amendment. It was learned that Miranda came to this country in 1917 and is a naturalized citizen. He has a 25-year-old son who is an insurance salesman. Never convicted of a crime despite numerous arrests going back to his pickpocket days at Coney Island, Miranda presents a mild appearance with his bald head, medium stature, and neat conservative clothes. On the way to the DA's office, Miranda chuckled when a detective alluding to his 1950 automobile said, Mike, you'd never have made it to Appalachian in this car. <laughs> In July of 1958, both Genovese and Miranda were called before the U.S. Senate to testify before a select committee probing illegal and improper activities in labor relations in certain industries, notably the garment industry. These hearings were famously chaired by John L. McClellan, Senator John F. Kennedy, future president, uh, as well as Robert F. Kennedy as chief counsel. But both men held strictly to the code of Omerta, giving nothing away in their testimony and leaving a frustrated McClellan to chastise both men, saying that they were despicable and that their refusal to cooperate had dishonored those who had sacrificed their lives for the freedom of American society. Even so, Genovese's luck was about to run out. The decade of the 1950s was arguably one of the, if not the most significant periods of upheaval ever in the American Cosa Nostra since the Castellamorese War had ended in 1931, but the turmoil wasn't over just yet. 
As it turns out, Vito Genovese's time on the street as boss of the family he so desperately wanted to lead was very short and ended with a double cross and a relative whimper. In 1958, Genovese was indicted on narcotics charges and sentenced to 15 years at the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary in Atlanta, Georgia. I won't get deep into what happened here, but I'll say that most mob scholars will agree that the case itself was a setup engineered by the United States government in collaboration with Vito's enemies as payback for his past misdeeds. After exhausting all his appeals and a bizarre incident where the lead witness in his case periodically recanted his testimony, Genovese began serving his sentence in 1960. Despite the circumstances, and while most will assume that Vito knew he was going away for life after the pinch, uh, if you read Vito's FBI papers after his arrest, it was clear that he believed he was going to be released at some point to come back out and run the family on the street again. In fact, there are some FBI reports stemming from information provided by an informant dubbed 2319C indicating that Genovese and his lawyers were particularly happy with a 1963 appellate court decision regarding his case that sent it on appeal to the U.S. Court of Appeals, Second Circuit. Uh, informant 2319C also picked up a conversation about this ruling between Tommy Ryan Eboli and a man named Mike, which the FBI uh, believed was either Mike Miranda or Vito's brother, Michael Genovese. Uh, either way, it was clear that Vito, as well as key leaders in the family, believed there would be a point in the not-too-distant future where Vito could be back out on the street running the family. So while serving his sentence, Genovese placed the family under the leadership of a three-man ruling panel to hold down the fort while he was away. Genovese would relay orders from his prison cell, typically through his brother Michael, to the panel members as they ran the day-to-day -day family activities. Now, if you research the subject of who took over for uh, Genovese while he was in prison, you're going to find some conflicting information as to exactly who made up this panel. While some sources suggest that it was made up of acting boss uh, Tommy, Tommy Ryan Eboli, uh, Gerardo, Jerry Catina, and Mike Miranda, other sources suggested that the panel included Eboli, Catina, and future boss Philip Benny Squint's Lombardo. While power sharing is not typical in the mafia, nor does it often last, this initial subterfuge created out of the strife of the boss's imprisonment actually set the stage for the front boss system, which would serve to protect the true identity of the Genovese boss for the next 20 to 30 years. And it would also be used by other families to stifle law enforcement efforts, even up until this day. Uh, so pretty good uh, system with a lot of good forethought uh, put into it, <laughs> generated out of, uh, you know, out of a time of, of uh, you know, great difficulty for the family. In reality, I don't think anyone except those directly involved or very close to the situation really truly knows who is a part of the panel. But suffice it to say, Miranda had either a seat directly at the table or a significant voice in Genevieve's family matters at the time. Let's set the stage for what's going on uh, between the five families in the immediate time period right after Vito goes away. During the 1960s, with the ruling panel in place, however it was constituted, there was a period of relative calm within the Genovese family, while the rest of the underworld was experiencing a period of significant turmoil that would last into the early 1970s. Carlo Gambino was busy strengthening the position of the Gambino family through his alliances first with Tommy Lucchese and then with his successor Carmine Tremuti. 
The Profaci family was undergoing internal strife caused by the war with the Gallo faction, and after the family boss Joe Profaci passed away, his successor uh, Joe Magliocco and Joe Bonanno of the Bonanno family launched a plot that would essentially have seen them take over the commission by assassinating Gambino and Lucchese. Unfortunately for Bonanno and Magliocco, the plot failed. Following that failed action, Gambino and Lucchese shelved both Bonanno and Magliocco under the threat of death and threw their support uh, behind Joe Colombo as the leader of the newly renamed Colombo family. The power vacuum in the Bonanno family, of course, led to internal strife, which culminated in the Bonanno family civil war of the 1960s, dubbed the Bananas War. So this essentially meant that two out of the other four major families in New York City were to some degree influenced by Gambino, uh, which would give him the majority vote on the commission. These events served to shift the balance of power in the underworld to the Gambinos, and that would last for a period of time even after Carlo Gambino died in 1976. While it's fair to say that the Genovese and the Gambinos weren't directly at odds during the 1960s, as time went by, they became natural rivals, constantly jockeying for control of the commission, a Machiavellian back and forth that would continue well into the 1990s. Now, getting back to our subject, uh, this turmoil caused by the events of the 1950s and 1960s meant that throughout the decade after Vito Genovese went to jail, law enforcement continued to pursue Big Mike Miranda and other mafia bosses. During 1963 and 1964, Senator John McClellan's Subcommittee on Organized Crime launched another series of hearings which featured the testimony of famous mob rat Joseph Valachi uh, and are more commonly known as the Valachi hearings. These hearings have been described by witnesses as the first major breakthrough in the barrier of silence that has traditionally surrounded and protected the hierarchy of the underworld, particularly in the mafia, and represented one of the first instances of the shadowy veil surrounding Cosa Nostra being somewhat lifted. In March 1965, the McClellan Committee would release a report on organized crime and illicit traffic in narcotics. In this report, the government lays out the detailed history of Cosa Nostra and connects the dots between the mafia and drug trafficking that had been going on at this time for decades. While Miranda certainly was not the main focal point of the hearings, the report does feature some testimony in which others talk specifically about Big Mike. In his testimony, Joseph Falacci dropped Miranda's name several times. In one line of discussion around whether or not mafia leaders regularly mix with their underlings, Bellacci and the committee conferred on the following. Uh, this from Inspector John J. Shanley from the NYPD, who provided expert analysis to the committee. We have one here, Anthony Carrillo, Tony the Sheik. He is a buffer in a sense for Mike Miranda. You observe Tony the Sheik, you are going to see Mike Miranda. He usually is in his company. Jerome S. Adlerman, who served as general counsel for the committee. Do you find, for example, Vito Genovese or Jerry Katina or Mike Miranda, do they deal directly with the soldiers? Mr. Shanley, no, they do not. Very few of these people are in operations. They are insulated against themselves. Mr. Bellacci, there are really many soldiers that never know the boss. Soldiers are in there 10 years probably and never saw a boss. So I think it's fair to say that by this point in Miranda's career, it wasn't that he wasn't well known to law enforcement. His FBI number was 91524. It's just that they couldn't get to him due to the structure of the mafia uh, and the buffers put in place. The family had a lot of buffers, uh, but that wouldn't stop the FBI from trying. 
Of course, they ended up with nothing from Miranda himself as the mob leader continued to stick to the oath of Omerta and kept his mouth shut while using his rights under the protection of the Fifth Amendment. However, there was one particularly funny exchange that gave me a bit of a chuckle in my research. Senator, Mr. Miranda, do you recognize yourself in this photograph? Miranda, I got no glass. I don't see. Senator, where are your reading glasses? Miranda, I got none. They're at home. <laughs> Jackass. <laughs> I'm sure this feigning of ignorance on Miranda's part pissed the committee off to no end, but at the time, this type of uh, response had become standard operating protocol for the American mob since they had so many politicians in their pockets. Though it would eventually change, as long as they all stuck together and held to the oath, they were nearly untouchable. As the FBI put it uh, in the many memorandums concerning the mafia, Mike Miranda was considered one of the most powerful gangsters of the 1950s and 1960s, both within the Genovese family as well as the entire country. And as you'll see, uh, this certainly makes him a viable candidate to take over control of the Genovese family when his boss, Vito Genovese, went to prison. To continue the theme of significant law enforcement pressure, in October 1965, the New York Police Department arrested Miranda and Eboli for parole violations of consorting with known criminals, but all the men were released within a week. Then on September 22, 1966, Miranda and 12 other high-level mafia members, including bosses from New York, New Orleans, and Florida, were arrested in the La Stella restaurant in Queens, New York. Others arrested were Eboli, Carlo Gambino, Carlos Marcello, the boss of New Orleans, Santo Traficanti, the boss of Florida, Joe Colombo, Emilio, Mr. Neil Delacroach. Uh, the men were fingerprinted, uh, strip searched, photographed, and then held as material witnesses. Uh, Miranda was once again charged with consorting with known criminals, and each man had to put up uh, $100,000 bail, a total of $1.3 for all 13 men. Uh, and that's in 1960s money, so that is a lot of money. According to FBI reports, press accounts of this raid reflect that a high police source stated that the poor man's Appalachian party was convened at the direct command of the unnamed subject and Michele Miranda, a top hoodlum of the New York office, primarily to discuss the disturbing intrusion of outside elements of what used to be a well-organized racket setup. According to Selwyn Robb's book, Five Families, The Rise, Decline, and Resurgence of America's Most Powerful Mafia Empires, the arrest resulted from a routine tale of Miranda, who had followed him to the restaurant. While staked out, the cops were astonished to see the pride of the American Mafia arriving separately and entering the restaurant. After the arrest, the high police source also claimed to have said that certain members of the Little Appalachian group had been seen visiting Miranda since his confinement in city jail, New York City, for failure to answer questions about the Appalachian meeting. The Central Intelligence Section, New York City Police Department, who led the raid on the luncheonette, has advised that the police department had determined that the luncheonette was a hangout for certain members of the original element. The CIS stated the purpose of the raid was to determine the identity of the individuals who were there and their criminal activities, and that actually no meeting of any kind appeared to be going on at the time of the raid. Uh, they were just having <laughs> they were just having dinner, uh, and they all happened to be congregated together. So the police kind of got lucky. Uh, 
he said the only connection he knew of between those arrested and Genevieve or Miranda was the fact that Antonio, Tony the Sheik Carrillo, who visits Miranda at the New York City Civil Jail, frequents the luncheonette and associates uh, with various individuals who were there at the time of the raid. He said that many of those arrested are associates of known hoodlums throughout the New York area. The source stated that to his knowledge, none of those arrested have visited Miranda since the latter has been in jail. So there are conflicting reports as to who was or was not visiting Miranda uh, while he was in jail after the La Stella bust. Uh, all in all, the La Stella restaurant bust uh, and most of the other actions of law enforcement during this time period, uh, in actuality, ended up having very little effect on the mob's operations, despite the level of publicity they received at the time. Miranda and the other bosses didn't end up doing really any significant prison time, save for small bits in jail after which they were released when charges couldn't be brought against them. By the end of the 1960s, the golden era of the mob was still in full swing and the Genovese family was poised for a change at the top for the first time since Vito Genovese usurped power back in 1957. In 1969, the Genovese family's namesake, Vito Genovese, died in prison, uh, which of course led to changes atop the family's leadership hierarchy. It was at this time where the front boss system officially began. Uh, many sources have speculated that it was Evely who became the official boss and head of the family, but really in the background, it's more likely that the Genovese successor at boss was really Philip Benny Squint's Lombardo. And if you look at all the candidates at the time, you'll begin to see why this makes sense. However, I'm going to admit candidly that during my research for this video, this is the most murky and downright confusing time period for the Genovese family in terms of trying to decipher the true leadership, which of course was by design. So let's break down all the top candidates at the time. First, uh, there's Thomas Tommy Ryan Eboli. Uh, as a front boss, Eboli was not popular with the other families or even his own men. He was always a hothead and did little to strengthen the family or his underlings, which didn't breed confidence from the rank and file. As a result, he was essentially installed as a puppet boss to be the lightning rod for both the FBI and other families. There's also former underboss Gerardo, Jerry Catina, who might have had a legitimate case to become boss, but unfortunately was serving a prison sentence at the time. Some sources even suggest that he actually did become the boss, but he was reputed to have relinquished the title when he went away to do his bit. Honestly, it's hard as an outsider to say if that's really true or not, though Katina was clearly a highly respected family leader. Then, of course, you also had the subject of today's biography, Big Mike Miranda, who was one of the most, if not the most, respected men in the Genovese family throughout the 1950s and 1960s. Had he been a little younger, he might have been the clear choice to replace his mentor Genovese, but at the time, he was already in his 70s, and while he was surely disappointed at not being made official boss, it's understandable that the family wanted to go in the direction of choosing someone with some potential longevity. And lastly, you had Philip Lombardo, who was slightly younger, respected, a good earner, and a shrewd strategist. Lombardo as boss makes sense looking back at the candidates, but most sources will cite him as a mere capo with Katina and or Evely as the bosses at the time. All in all, the real powers in the family at the time were reputed to have been Benny Squint uh, and our subject, Mike Miranda. 
I'd also add that uh, Anthony Fat Tony Salerno, who was, of course, one of the biggest earners in the history of organized crime, would have made a worthy successor as well. But he was just a little bit younger than Lombardo and Miranda at the time. So it just wasn't quite his turn yet, it appears. Tommy Ryan Evely didn't end up lasting very long as front boss. In 1972, he got himself in major hot water when he borrowed $4 million from Carlo Gambino in a massive, massive drug scheme which had designs on enabling Evely, who did not like being the front man, to eventually garner enough power to take over the Genovese family and ditch the front boss title. However, when Evely failed to pay back his debt, Gambino orchestrated his murder. This just goes to show the power that Gambino was wielding at the time as he didn't hesitate to have a major leader within a rival family whacked out. After Evely's death, the Genovese family created a second ruling panel with Katina and Miranda, along with actual family boss Philip Lombardo, calling the shots. To continue the strategy of insulating the boss, they installed the next in a series of front bosses, one Frank Funzi Thierry, who was a major powerhouse in his own right within the Genovese family, and of course, as I mentioned, former member of Miranda's crew. As previously mentioned, uh, the strategy of creating a subterfuge by not truly letting anyone know who the real boss was enabled the Genovese family to thrive well into the late 1980s and beyond with even other mafia families not fully knowing who was 100% pulling the strings behind the scenes. I'd also add that by sharing the power and decision-making, the Genovese family ended up having the greatest level of alignment for the battles that eventually came when law enforcement got its act together in the 1980s. It's quite amazing that all of the family's leadership, even the front bosses, were able to put egos aside and put Cosa Nostra, sometimes at their own expense first, when other families were often beefing over power, position, money, and who knows what else. It's this series of moves that is the basis for why the Genovese family is known today as the Ivy League of the Mafia. And our subject, Mike Miranda, played a significant role in the success that the far-reaching plan assured for the family in the following decades, even though he wouldn't be around to see the end result years down the line. In 1972, Mike Miranda decided to hang it up and retired from active involvement in family affairs. He retired in great standing amongst his Mafia peers and as an elder statesman of the Genovese Mafia family, according to the New York Times. To replace Miranda, Anthony Fat Tony Salerno stepped in at this time as the family's new consigliere. Big Mike would leave his Mafia family in good hands as Philip Lombardo served as boss until the early 1980s. As previously stated, in 1972, Frank Funzi Thierry replaced Evely as front boss, and in the mid-1970s, Salerno replaced Thierry as front boss until he was sent away for life in the commission case in 1986. In the early 1980s, Vincent the Chin Giganti officially stepped in as the official boss and ran the family with an iron fist into the 1990s and early 2000s. Big Mike would spend roughly a year in retirement and died of natural causes on Sunday, September 16, 1973, in Boca Raton, Florida. In the New York Times article announcing his death, it stated that he was to be buried in Woodlawn Cemetery, but in actuality, he was buried in St. John's Cemetery in Middle Village, Queens. Could it have been a little gamesmanship on his part from the great beyond? Given that he kept the authorities guessing for nearly his entire Mafia career, I'd like to think that he got one last misdirection in before going to his final resting place. In closing, Michele, Big Mike Miranda, achieved what many, 
hell most mobsters, including his mentor, Vito Genovese, failed to achieve. While he never made it to the top in terms of being boss, he managed to be universally respected, was involved in some of the most significant mob events in the 20th century, and for the most part stayed under the radar, held strictly to the Code of Omerta, avoided serious jail time, and died peacefully in his own home. Miranda was the quintessential mobster, and in that life, a role model for how to do things the right way. While he wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty, he preferred to use diplomacy and focused on making money, not headlines. He was very capable, wasn't overly flashy, and he didn't appear to have a huge ego, which are three ingredients for long-term success in the Mafia. If Miranda or any of the family's top guys had decided to get out of line and make a run at the top spot after Vito went to prison, the family would likely have devolved into civil war similar to what plagued both the Perfacci and Bonanno crime families throughout the 1960s. But they didn't do that, and it worked out extremely well for the family in the long run. These facts make Michael Miranda a large part of what made the Genovese crime family successful, especially in the 1960s and 1970s, where they really honed their reputation as the true Ivy League family of American Cosa Nostra. Okay, so that's it for this episode. Another mob biography in the books. I appreciate everyone's patience, uh, as I know it takes me a really, really, really long time to do the research, record, and produce the episodes, but I hope you found it worth the wait. Uh, to be honest, I probably spend 50 or 60 hours doing the painstaking work on each episode I put out. So just know that while I'd like to move faster, life sometimes gets in the way. Uh, and I want to ensure that I'm doing my homework to give you the detail you can't find really easily uh, anywhere else. As always, I appreciate the support. And if you're on YouTube, please let me know what you thought about the episode in the comments below. And please mash that subscribe button on YouTube and hit the notification bell so you know when I've posted a new episode. If you're listening to the audio version of the episode, I'd appreciate it if you'd rate the show in order to help it grow. Although I'm not super active on other platforms, feel free to check out our website at www.membersonlypodcast.com or follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Until next time, grazie. Thank you for listening to the Members Only Podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, please hit like and subscribe to help the channel grow. You can also listen anywhere you get your podcasts. Until next time, don't forget to keep your mouth shut.